Welcome to the Writer Dojo with your hosts, Steve Diamond. That's me. And Larry Faria. Hey, guys. Today's episode setting. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Writer Dojo with Larry and I here. Today, we want to tackle the idea of entering your story or, or having your story start with the setting rather than the character. Now, we've talked about having the character being kind of the, the point that excites you about telling whatever story you want to tell. But, and, and I'm that way, and I know that you're that way in, in a lot of cases. However, it's equally valid, and, and it can be equally as exciting, and sometimes more exciting, depending on the type of person you are, to start with the setting rather than, you know, a specific character. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of fun when we did a little, a little thought experiment. We went through, like, different books that are character-based. Uh, so this time we're going to talk about the uh, setting base. And again, there's no right way or wrong way. We can both think of magnificent books that are the, the same, uh, come from either way. Like last time we talked about how your character-driven stories are going to be things like, if the book is named after the character, uh, it's probably a character-driven story. You know, uh, you know, Mad Max. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's about Mad Max. You know, RoboCop. Yeah. It's about RoboCop. Yeah. Bosch, you know, Bosch. Think, things like that, right? Well, your setting stories, it's the same thing. If its if the story is named after the setting, then it's probably a setting story. Yeah. Um, we were talking about Dune earlier. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Dune, it, for, for all the cool characters that are in Dune, Dune is, Dune is about Dune. It's about the planet. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a setting story. Well, it's funny because then it's the same kind of... And it, just because it's a setting story doesn't mean you, you don't have good characters. Hyperion uh, by Dan Simmons, one of the greatest novels I think ever ever told, and it's named after the planet that it takes place on. Uh, it's, a, it's a setting story. However, it's also got a fantastic cast of characters. So this is not a one or the other. Character or setting stories are not mutually exclusive. What we're talking about here is just a way to come at it. Yeah. And in this case, this is where you came up with the cool idea for where the book is going to take place first and then how to develop that. Shoot. You know, I, I remember, and I'm not going to get too in-depth in into the weeds on it, but um, there, there's an idea that you and I talk about pr- pretty frequently, and that's kind of my that's my alternate— uh, The Gold Rush one? Yeah, the old, the, my alternate Gold Rush idea. Oh, yeah, this is a badass idea. There are almost no—like, characters came later. Yeah, we actually have this—this uh, is one we'll probably do later, but we, we haven't— uh, we can't give away too much about no, this one. We're not going to go too hard, but because we'll probably wind up writing this one of these days. Mm-hmm. This is really good. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cowboy novel. Yeah, it, it's it's a cowboy novel, alternate history. But the funny thing about that idea is, uh, it, when when I remember pitching it to you, um, for for me, you and another guy to do together, um, it was it was, hey, I've got this really cool alternate history concept idea. Check this out. It's about it's about how. You know, this country did this at this time, and then and then the setting happens this way, and there's these economics involved, and, and that drives all of this. Yeah. So it's very different. Think think about how, how I just described that um, in, in the most basic terms, because Larry and I are super excited about this idea, and we don't want to give it away yet. Yeah, I know. We'll, we'll pitch that to Tony when this other series is done. So, <laughs> but, but think about that in contrast to, to what Larry and I were talking about in some of the character-centric episodes, where it's, oh, man. I got this crazy idea for this really ridiculous detective who's a werewolf. Yeah. You know, it's so, you're coming at it from two completely different sides and yet they're both they're hand. both super they 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 tend to generate the other one. 
Well, because like we said with the characters, it's really interesting because you ask yourself, how does this guy come to be in this the way that he is? And that's that starts answering questions about the world. And I used Ashok as an example. Uh, but the same thing, when you come up with a setting first, uh, then characters will spin off of that setting. Because when you have a setting, it's like, well, where do these characters, you know, like who would exist in this world? Um, who are the interesting characters who exist here? Well, yeah, so like Hard Magic, um, my Grimnore Chronicles was an idea before it was characters. Uh, so that was one that was a, a setting story before it was a character story. Uh, in that I created the setting where it was going to be an alternate history 1930s with magic. That was what I started out mm-hmm. Then I was like, okay, what cool characters populate a 1930s with magic world? The first big obvious one was the hard-boiled detective archetype and uh, the Great War vet. And so I ran with that. But then as it expanded out from there, uh, because you know I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley of California, just south of where you grew right, up. Right, right. And... Uh, you know, we had the whole Dust Bowl thing mm-hmm. with the Okies and the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, all and Grapes of Wrath. According to the Portuguese, the Okies were the bad guys. Okay, see, in, <laughs> in those books, the Okies are heroes. In real life, to the Portuguese, the Okies were the villains who invaded. And if you got my grandpa going about that, he would get spun up on going these long rants, which I remembered and put into the book. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the best writing I've ever done is that opening scene where it's this old Portuguese farmer complaining about Okies. <laughs> well, I, you know... Again, as, as Larry and I always talk about, we end up selling books next to each other pretty frequently at trade shows. And uh, whenever I'm pitching Larry's book or Larry's pitching his own books when it comes to, to hard magic, uh, we're always pitching the setting in that one. Yeah. Right? Even though it's a very character, great it's, character It's a super character-driven book, especially book two. But with Steve setting, Diamond, the oh, mover. Yeah. The greatest character ever. Greatest character ever created. But no, it is definitely a setting novel. Uh, yeah. And everything's spun off of that setting. It's interesting. Whenever you have a setting-specific novel, it lends itself to some really cool thought experiments. I've taught uh, several times now. I've taught a uh, world-building workshop. It's like a four-hour-long uh, class on world-building. We're basically get the class. We'll go through like how I build worlds and different examples and, and from other fiction, stuff they're familiar with. But then as a class, we'll build some worlds together where we'll have people throw out ideas uh, we also, as a teacher, I give myself veto power. So if like an idea is just too outlandish that we just can't, because some some smart aleck always has some like weird thing they want to yeah. shove in there, and uh, sometimes you can actually make it work, but other times you can't. But I'll do this thing where, over the last couple hours of class, we'll build a few worlds from scratch, and it's fascinating because one of the things I always say uh, in the, in this workshop is always be asking. So if this, then what? Yeah. If this setting has this. What is going to be the natural repercussions of that? Uh, this is great. If, so if you create a magical setting and, you know, you have magic in that world, then you start to, have to ask yourself, how would that change the world? So like in Hard Magic, I introduced these different types of magical powers. Um, I had healers. yeah, but I, but I was like, okay, so if you have a world with a magical healer, what does that change? And also, he's like, so how how common is this? Uh, how rare, how, because if it's not common, then it's going to be very valuable and very expensive. Um, and basically, I introduced magical healing into this book so I could have cooler fight scenes to get the main characters back into action faster. But it, it actually led to some really interesting things. So I made healers like a one in a million kind of thing. And so they were worth their weight in gold. And so rich people specifically would monopolize them because it was the era of, you know, your your uh, your Carnegie's and your uh, J.P. Morgan's. Right. And they would monopolize these healers. And uh, 
it was just really interesting because so a healer would be a, like a billionaire, oh, just yeah. just by virtue of existing. Yeah, you know. But we had all these different questions you can just ask. If you have people who can control electricity, what does it do? If you have people who control fire, what does that do? People can control gravity, so on and so forth. How does that change industry? How does that change the economy? How does it change communications? Yeah, I, when 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 I think of of creating worlds, I in, in a way, I mean. I, I think of it in the same way as creating a character, quite honestly. Um, I, I think of the world and I'm like, okay, what, what's this What's this world's traits? Yeah. Okay, what, what kind of stuff is there? Um, what, kind of, what kind of politics is this world into? What kind of religion is this world into? Um, is, you know, what kind of temperament is this world? Um, yeah, oh, totally. You know, and, and so I, I tend to start crafting it. it. It ends up becoming like the most complex character ever. But, but that's that's kind of how I I don't I don't know if you do it any in the no, same but sort of measure. I, I but that's I how but I that's, tackle it. I think that's a good way to look at it. I think that's a logical, smart way to look at it. It really is the same basic fundamental building blocks of what makes this thing interesting, and what makes it cool. Yeah, and and where where within this world the, the question I always ask, uh, Larry is is where in this world are the are the parts or the points of highest conflict. Because if there's no conflict in a story, I get freaking bored. Yeah, that's not the kind of books I like to read or write. I mean, some people are into that, I guess. No, I'm I'm not. I'm not into the kind of the the navel gazy sort of oh, like yeah, like a day in the life of Joe Schmo. Like like I think judging by book sales, I don't think anybody is. No, no. I'm <laughs> I need action in the books and I need character conflict and I need it and I need the the conflict that the world generates. I need it to feel rational. I, I can't have it feeling like like every zombie show ever created where the world is infested with zombies and because those zombies exist, everyone makes stupid choices or the plot forces you down a certain way because of, yeah. of some weird cheap setting gimmick. Yeah, poor world building poor world building kills stories because it forces it forces dumb writing to make it work um i don't know you see this a lot and we pick on certain movies a lot but uh you know like the world building in last jedi was the most nonsensical thing in the history of the universe it was so freaking awful if you look at the worlds that exist it just how, how little sense the stuff made so for the plot to proceed it required the characters to be stupid and make stupid, pointless errors in order for the action to continue. Because the way the world was set up was asinine. Uh, well, they're, they're trying to explain it to you the whole time because they're not even sure how it's working. And yeah, all that. and when I say world, I don't necessarily mean individual planets in it. I'm, I'm talking about, like, the setting rules. The, the big setting, yeah. Which is really sad because they took the, you know, however many movies before that that had rules that made sense and just hucked them out the window. Um, you can't do that. Um, your setting... When we say setting, I don't just mean the physical geography of the world. I mean, like, the rules. Yeah. The rules of the universe you live in. Um, and that could be a lot of different things. So we, we're, 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 we're genre writers. We're talking science fiction, fantasy. Horror. If you're writing sci-fi, a lot of times world building is technology. Yeah. You know, what is the tech level of this world? Um, and then what are your rules for different technologies? You can't just suddenly, you know, flip it on a dime introduce some crazy new tech that never existed before 
and expect that to make sense. When I say that, I'm thinking of the Holdo maneuver, yeah. where for nine movies we've had spaceship battles where it's dogfighting spaceships is kind of the rule that's been set. But all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we could just flip a ship to hyperspace and obliterate a whole you know, mega battle cruiser in its entire carrier battle group in an instant. Worst admiral ever. And it was like the dumbest thing because, like, well, why didn't they just do that to the Death Star? Twice. Why didn't they just do that in you know every episode single flipping movie they had? Yeah, and they and they try to explain it away later because I think they realized how stupid it was. It was super but, stupid. You know, it was pretty. Now let's let's contrast that to John Wick one. Okay. Okay. John Wick. Let's talk. I mean, talk about the world of the Continental. Yeah, right? it's actually and and their their currency of money and all that stuff. Like they they spend almost zero time verbally explaining things because it actually if you think about it economically speaking if it costs a gold krugerrand to buy a drink or you know a suite of like an entire three gun arsenal with body armor those must be really good drinks guns and and it's also a krugerrand and a night in a hotel is a krugerrand or whatever you know the gold piece okay that doesn't make sense but that was one of those where they definitely went with rule of cruel and they didn't try to explain it no it was it was a thing that just well, was, and it's become such a uh, such a success, just in terms of of wow, like this thing within this world is really cool. Well, that, that they've consistent. created that they've created its own uh, their own series for it that's going to premiere at some point. Yeah, right. I would so I would love to be background gun guy who gets beat up and shot to death, and that that'd be awesome. That's like yeah. a goal in life. I mean, there's a lot of those. Well, and I look like most of them too. Is the sad That's part? True. I really, I really do. That's why my son describes me to his friends. Is like, I was like, oh, my dad's the one that looks like a generic John Wick villain, and immediately, oh, that guy. Yeah, they'll they'll know which one it is. Yeah, That's me. <laughs> but it's internally consistent world building, right? Um, you have a really interesting writer who a guy we've both talked about on the show who I really like is Lee Modisett. Yeah. He's great. Uh, Lee's great. But Lee's background was an economist, yeah. uh, um, a very good economist. He uh, uh, he worked for the government for a long time, so don't hold, don't hold that against him. Me and Lee disagree on politics all the time, but yeah. he's one of the only guys I can actually argue about with it because he's really smart. Well, and and he's so he's so kind with his, you know, like like he'll disagree with you vehemently. Oh yeah. While and, while smiling and giving you a hug. Yeah, he's a good dude. But I've been on panels with Lee where Lee's gone. Lee and his world building goes so in depth on the politics and economics. Yes. And the thing is, when you read his book, so you can tell because it's consistent. You can feel there's thought put into it. But we were one time on a panel, and I was sitting in the audience, and so Lee was talking. And uh, Lee's one of the panelists where I'll actually go to the panel and be in the audience because I can actually listen and learn stuff. And uh, Lee one time was like, "You know, in all these years we knew this, I don't think I've ever seen. I've seen anybody do a." Uh, a fantasy world with fact with fractional reserve banking. I raise my hand and I go, I have, because <laughs> I actually had that in Son of the Black Sword. <laughs> and the thing is, I actually figured out how the economy works with the paper money there in this fantasy setting. Uh, except that never shows up in the book at all because it's incredibly boring. To, to I mean, there's like 15 people in America who would actually find that chapter interesting. <laughs> but it's internally consistent world building is what it's all about. All right, we're going to take a break really quick, and when we come back, we're going to go more into the differences between world building within our own world versus uh, a completely made up one, 
And then uh, I, I really, Larry, I want to talk about the, the do's and don'ts, well, basically the don'ts of checklisting within, oh. a, within a setting. Yeah, totally. A lost colony planet, a perplexing murder, and a dog homicide cop in this audible original story from best-selling author Larry Correa and narrated by Oliver Wyman. When the biggest colony ship in human history was sent to settle a paradise world, an accident hurtled it deep into uncharted space. A thousand light years from Earth, with no way home and no way to call for help. The colonists' only hope for survival was the one barely habitable planet in range, a nightmare world they named Croatoan. Landing on the only five mountain peaks tall enough to rise above the lethal acid clouds, the settlers carved a civilization from the rock. A hundred years later, Five Points has grown into a city of corruption and violence. With powerful corporations pooling the surface domes and criminal syndicates running the caverns below, murder is just the cost of doing business. So when a special magistrate is found dissolving in a protein vat, it barely registers. Until DCI Lutero Cade, the last honest cop in Five Points, catches the case. What he finds could threaten the colony's very existence, or at the very least, Kate himself. Lost Planet Homicide will be available on Audible on October 21st, 2021, and will be free with an Audible Plus subscription. All right, welcome back, everybody. Now, Larry and I talked in the first segment of the show about setting being kind of your your excitement and your entry point into it talking about some of the good and bad examples of this uh of setting and world building that, that we've both seen and noticed um but what i want to talk about right now first is kind of my my pet peeve when it comes to very setting specific books um and in turn i think of when this comes to mind i think of things like steampunk settings or um or cyberpunk settings or uh, specifically grimdark fantasy settings too. And that's the idea of checklisting to get your point across rather than, you know, telling a good story. Okay, what do you have in mind? So I remember reading a book a while back. I'm not going to name it. And it, it, was a, it was a steampunk book. And you got to understand, I really love steampunk. I think it's a. I think it's a such a. I think it's a cool concept. I love the idea of the setting. I love the idea of the types of stories you can tell, in settings that revolve around steampunk type technologies, um, especially in alternate history settings. I, 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 I'm completely fascinated by it. I love it to death. Um, and one day, one day, I'll, I'll write my steampunk story, that that I've written part of already. And um, I remember reading this book. I was so excited. The cover was amazing. The author is actually a great author. And I remember reading the book and I felt like, like it, it literally pulled me out of the story, Larry. I could feel as if there were a metaphorical list and the author went, okay, check. I have checked off that setting device for, mm. for this. And, uh, okay, I'm going to move on to the next one. The following tropes are required for yes. a steampunk story. And it was, it was, okay, I must have goggles heavily portrayed in at least four scenes. Um, <laughs> I must have this and this and this. You know, you, you often you see this in horror as well, especially yeah. with, with bad villains in horror. Um, you know, you, you start checklisting setting you ideas. You see it a lot right now in bad Hollywood writing with the strong female character. Right. Must meet all the following requirements so they're all exactly the same and boring. Which is ironic, right? Because it's not like we haven't had strong female 
characters that we loved before. I mean, yeah. frickin' Ripley. Yeah, it, great character. But it's interesting, though. Checklisting is actually a kiss of death, whether it's setting, character, whatever the political topic of the day is. Guys, be really careful with this. People feel like they have to put certain things in to meet specific criteria. You know what? Honestly, you don't. Don't fall into that trap. It's completely unnecessary. Do what you think is cool. Do what you think is unique and original and fun. Uh, but yeah, I hate that in settings. You see that in fantasy a lot too, where it's okay. I have a standard fantasy. I'm going to have the following, you know, tropey things based on you know my my Dungeons and Dragons campaign and Lord of the Rings. That used to that was a really common thing in the old days. Now it's gone the opposite direction where we have to subvert expectations. We have the checklist of expectation subversion. Yeah, you know, it's like oh well, we're gonna do everything different to be edgy, which is even worse. Because um, a lot of those successful tropes exist for a reason, because people like them, because they're entertaining. Honestly, guys, either way, it's dumb. Don't do it. Just r- make what you want. Well, and really, and and we we talk about we talked about we've talked about business and stuff before, and and what I think a lot of people don't realize is just how long it takes. Unless you're self-published and you can all you do is just hit a button overnight, because. You're not you're not thinking through things clearly. Um, it takes a while for a book to be written and then therefore to be printed thereafter. Are you about and the tre- so, trend chasers. Yeah. So yeah. so when it comes with the the insert message here crowd and the uh, the oh well well this is the this is the statement and the message of the of the month. So I must include this in my story. Yeah. By the time your story is published. That message is probably irrelevant. Yeah, and you can always see a glut of uh, stories. Uh, books come out about a year and a half mm. after there was like a major news story yeah. uh, that hit on some controversial thing. Well, you'll have like a year and a half later all these books that have a comment upon this you know topic, which is really stupid too, guys. We're talking about, we're creating sci-fi worlds and fantasy worlds here, right? Why do we always make this assumption? This is a bad writing thing. We're bad writers take this assumption that. A thing that's going to be a controversial topic in July of 2021 is going to be a valid controversial topic in the year 3000. Yeah, no one cares. Yeah, no. I mean, honestly, guys, you you know what you sound like, what you're going to sound like, short order. It's like when we go back and we read books from the 60s, and they have a really super blatant uh, messaging about, like, 1960s politics, uh, and and we laugh at them now. You guys are doing the same thing. Well, in in and then to contrast that, I, you know, I was reading the Maltese Falcon fairly recently. That was a classic, classic novel. But you know why it's a classic novel is because it focuses on the setting and on the characters and on the storytelling primarily. Yep. Um, the politics are kind of irrelevant in it, unless it's specifically the politics built into that world because the setting requires politics. Yeah, see, world politics are great, but the thing is, is it's really interesting. If you're creating a world from scratch and you're going to have like political maneuvering, which is you know cool, fun stuff to read about, you don't need to make it about our world now. No. I mean, by all means, why would you restrain yourself? I remember there were, for a while there was a rash of every single thing out of Hollywood. Well, this is... I'm, I'm dating myself come Gen X here, but every single thing out of Hollywood there for a couple of years was basically all the bad guys were thinly veiled George Bush and Dick Cheney. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you had like the dumb guy president or dumb guy king 
And then you have the malicious, uh, you know, uh, face shooter, <laughs> big guy, <laughs> pulling his strings. And it was so funny because, like, I mean, Stephen King did it. Everybody fell into it for a while. Was just, all the bad guys were thinly veiled Bush and Cheney. And it was like, oh, come on. This is just lame, guys. You got the entire freaking universe to draw ideas from. And it's all going to be the same thing. So, so to talk about that, let's segue from there into creating settings, like like super compelling settings, and what the differences are in, in how difficult, I guess it is, of doing this sort of creation and entering in the story in a in a world that's ours. So let's think urban fantasy type stuff. Yeah, like versus, Monster Hunter. Yeah, like Monster Hunter. Yeah. Versus a secondary world uh, fantasy, like... You know anything Brandon writes, or yeah, where or, you've or made up a planet, yeah, from where you've, you've made up something from from nowhere, right? Yeah. So let let's start with, in, in your opinion, uh, and I think I know I think I know what your answer is going to be. Is one more difficult than the other? Mm, not really. Um, I, I what did you think I was going to say? That's what I thought you were going to okay. say. <laughs> I was going to say I think it's just going to depend on the story, uh, because I, th- I think a lot of people would say that. Um, creating your own world from scratch is harder. You would think. But they're not thinking about the ramification of introducing change into our world. See, the problem is, too, um, okay, so if I write, like, for example, Gunrunner, John and I came, John Brown and I came up with a couple different planets that the action takes place in the sci-fi novel, and uh, we could introduce new technologies, and we could introduce weird things for that planet. We could introduce weird cultural things or amalgamations of different stuff from different worlds that had settled there uh, based on real-life cultures. Or we created new culture from scratch. Uh, and, you know, we had a lot of freedom to do that and ask interesting questions about how this stuff came about, what kind of people come for that. When I'm doing, like, for example, Monster Hunter and Urban Fantasy, if I introduce a new technology or a new thing, like miraculous, magical stuff into our world, I have to go through our world and say, what is that going to change? And if I screw that up, all my readers are familiar with Earth to some degree or another. Well, (laughs) I would hope. You'd think. Um, (laughs) Some of them live in their own little worlds. But but if if I... tweak a wild thing in a fantasy world or a sci-fi world that I made up from scratch, it's whatever I say it is. If I introduce something here on Earth that doesn't make sense, immediately all the readers are going to glom onto it and they're going to catch it. It'd be like, the example I used one time for this about new technologies would be like, if I wrote a scene here on Earth where somebody pulled up in a car and the guy hurried and got in the car by crawling in through the trunk and then crawling through the back seat and getting in front, everybody would be like, what? why didn't you just get in the door? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it would immediately, without context, it's like, that makes no sense. Why would you do that? That's the danger of introducing new stuff into our world. you got to think it through and make sure it works. So I actually say they're they're probably pretty equal. Yeah, and I agree with you. I, I, think, I think that there are benefits to either. Um, now, now while, while we just said that there are some difficulties when you're thinking about ramifications of introducing things in our world, for example, there are a lot of things that you can just – you can just – go with it's like i don't have to explain transportation yeah because they just know um, we, we know we know what cars do they take it we know what granted. planes do um we know more or less how a gun works most people well some people less people do yeah you know we, my we audience they all do. yours do yeah um so yeah. you don't you don't have to spend time inventing or explaining things like that no uh, whereas if i'm doing a sci-fi thing and they make a 
a call from planet to planet, I have to, I've now established that we have real time, faster than light communications. You know, that's a big deal. If I'm just doing it on Earth and I, I call somebody in California on the phone, no one's going to question it. Right. It is what it is. Now, on the secondary world stuff, what I really like about that is I get to do what I want. You get a lot of freedom. I mean, I, I let, let's go back to the Dune example, right? Um, oh, I want I want Empire State Building-sized mega worms. Yeah. You know? I want this planet that has spice on it that causes faster-than-light travel. Well, I want to be able, to, I want to, be able to, to outthink a computer. Yeah, because in my setting, computers are evil. Yeah. And they destroyed the universe. It's the Butlerian jihad. Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, there, there's so much freedom there. And, and again, well, and, and, and Dune is set in our universe, but so many thousands like of years 10, in the future. 10,000 years later. Um, but I, and, and I, don't, I don't know how Frank Herbert was. I assume he is high when he wrote it. But it was the 70s. I, so he, I mean, I can just imagine a guy like that sitting down and going, holy crap, and, and then I can do this, and I have freedom, so I can make all this other weird crap up, and I'm going to do this, and this, and this. And it was a pretty ambitious. Uh, if you think about the, for the 1970s, that was a really ambitious world building. Well, and and in in there, you you just mentioned the Butlerian Jihad, right? Which was a a novel that later on Brian Herbert and 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 our buddy Kevin Anderson wrote together. Oh man, I'm excited for that movie to come out. I hope it's great, and I hope Kevin Anderson makes millions of dollars. Me too. But the the interesting thing is in the book, I think in, in I think it's in Dune, in the first Dune book, um, it's almost like a throwaway line. Yeah. There was this, oh yeah, and, and, and guys, there was this there was this crazy jihad that happened in, in Butlerian and whatever. Just deal. Just move, move, move on to move on to, to personal shields and, and sandworms. You know, that's something that I actually have a lot of experience with in, in books. I love throwing little tidbits into world building um, that you don't necessarily explain. It's just something that the characters reference, but it gives you all these little cool things. First off, it makes the world feel lived in. Yeah. Because people always, in real life, we always mention things that came before. I mean, I've, I'll just mention Bush Cheney, right? It was right. the thing. If you lived in America in the 2000s, you know who that is. Um, it's the same kind of thing. So in the fantasy worlds, if they've just mentioned, oh, the people of such and such, well, all of a sudden that's an opportunity later that we could go off in that branching direction. Or you mention a war that happened before or some major historical thing or some, or just name somebody the butcher of something. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's like, yeah. whoa. Oh, yeah, like in The Expanse, right? They talk about uh, the Butcher of Anderson Station, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, I, it's in it's in the first book, I believe, and you, you're reading it and you're going, wait, Fred who? He sounds awesome. Yeah. I want to see this story. Yeah. So they wrote it. Fred Johnson. So so they wrote it. They wrote that as a little novella. Um, I Those are some of the things that I, I really like. I, like. I like those throwaway things and as a... As an author, when I read other people's stories and I see those throwaway lines, I always kind of look at it and I go, all right, when, when are we getting this story? This sounds cool. Yeah. I want to see this. I do that. I, I do that. I, I, I do that a lot. And I'll just have little, uh, especially in science fiction or fantasies, like straight up stuff. I, I love having those little tidbits, nuggets just hanging out there. And then it's funny, later on I'll see the readers, like was they're reviewing it and they're talking on the Facebook page or whatever. And to see who gloms onto what. And I'm like, well, I definitely need to revisit that one. <laughs> so what I hope everyone listening is, is, is understanding from, from what Larry and I are talking about is 
it doesn't really matter where you start your story. Um, if you are a character, a complete character person like I am, you know, a lot of times that that's going to be the point, the part that gets you excited. Um, if you're a setting person and that's what gets you excited, whatever, whatever it is that gets you excited so that you are going to sit your butt down and actually write that story and have fun doing it. Um, now, later on, uh, Larry and I will get into really nuts and bolts on different things like, like, hey, let's talk about how to how to write religion in a story. Let's talk about how to write politics in a story. But hey, if you guys want to hear something else um, in terms of setting or character from us, just you know, write in and let us know, and we'll we'll take a peek at it. So that's it for us today. Thanks again for joining us on the on the Writer Dojo. And again, we want to thank our great folks, Jack, who is our editor, announcer, web whatever guy extraordinaire, who makes it so that Larry and I stay sane. And then Craig Nibo for our awesome intro and extra um, music and for letting us use his awesome studio so that we actually sound like we know what we're doing. So this is the Writer Dojo. Thanks, everyone. Take it easy. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Correa, produced by Jack Wilder and Baron Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries, by Craig Nivo. New episodes come out every Wednesday, wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo, by leaving us a five-star rating or review, and by helping to spread the word. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. Oh, well, we're going to do everything different to be edgy.